Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Hey, this is the biggest holiday of the year. Um, and, and in the United States, we spend billions of dollars. We celebrate this, uh, this, this Christmas time. Two-thirds of Americans celebrate Christmas Hundred million people will be in church uh, around Christmas time um, in the U.S. alone, and and it's interesting because it's like the biggest day of the year, the biggest of all the holidays we have. Um, and if you were, I was thinking about this. If you were asked by somebody, "Hey, what's what's Christmas all about?" and how, how would you explain it to someone who has no context of the story or or what we celebrate here in the U.S. and it would go something like this: Is how I, I've rehearsed it. It would be like, "Okay, well, Christmas." It's that time of year where we like pause for a whole day and we celebrate a poor peasant baby being born in the Middle East uh, under this oppressive empire. And, and, and then you might get fuzzy on some of those, like how many donkeys showed up or was it a donkey that he did? How many sheep were in the, the thing? But then they're like, okay, enough with the details. How do you celebrate this baby born in the Middle East? You'd say, okay, well, we chop down a tree, we decorate it with some lights, we hang oversized stalks over a fireplace in the winter, super functional, uh, and we, we celebrate this red jolly guy that was reinvented in the 1930s by Coca-Cola to sell Coke products. In case you're, I'm not here to ruin Christmas, but that's, that's a little different than what you read about in the scripture, would you agree? So we're a church, and I, I'm a man, I'm the pastor of the garden, and I love the scriptures. I love what the scriptures do, and, and this morning, I just want to talk about the story of Christmas, because I think perhaps today, in our time, it is the most relevant story we can tell, but for many of us, we just actually don't know the story, because, or if we have heard the story, it's been sanitized and domesticated by advertisers. And so I would just like to present to you a bit of the history behind the story that we celebrate on Christmas um, and what it's all about. And so I want to just give you some observations and give you some history behind the Christmas story today. Because I think if we go back a few thousand years, we might actually see some implications for what it looks like for us to live here and now today. And the Christmas story is this enduring story that's lasted 2,000 years. And why do we celebrate it? Well, one famous... um, professor of storytelling from USC, not UFC, although that would be, I don't think they have professors at UFC. Um, uh, I have a joke in my head, I'm not going to say it because it's totally, I don't think it's funny and I I don't think you'll laugh, but I'm filtering myself because I'm learning, (laughs) I'm learning. Bobette Buster, she says this, she's a storyteller, teaches storytelling, she's a, a consultant for Hollywood and she says the Christmas story has everything, audacity, wonder, awe, journey, vulnerability, courage, tragedy. And they all collide in a single narrative. She says, if you were to direct this as a Hollywood movie, all the typical elements of great storytelling are there. She said, it has the audacity of Schindler's List, the transformation of Shawshank Redemption, the complexity of It's a Wonderful Life, and my favorite, the depth of the Star Wars franchise, which she adds borrows the full template of the Christ story. Emphasis added Star Wars, of course, because um, <clears throat> we're a big Star Wars fan at this church. If you're not a Star Wars fan, I'm just, you're welcome to leave. It's totally fine. Uh, if you haven't seen The Last Jedi, I apologize. You, you can just leave now. I won't be offended. I'm already offended that you haven't seen it. Um, 
So here we go. Christmas story in context. For those of you that want to know, okay, does this pastor take notes? Here are the notes for you. All seven points on the screen. We'll go through them one at a time real quick. And I know these are going to be helpful for you. Number one, Augustus, formerly known as Octavian. I knew you were waiting for that. These are notes for the Christmas story. Peace in the Middle East. Three is poor, displaced teenage peasant, pregnant outside of marriage, day laborers from the middle of nowhere. Just taking notes, that was just for me. Four is God shows up under the overpass. Five is God with us. Six is God, Christmas disrupts how the world works. And then we're going to land together at number seven, small, overlooked, and slow. So in the next 25 minutes, we'll talk about those seven points. Sound good? Let me pray before we open up the scriptures. So Lord, we thank you um, for your story that is here in the scriptures, this revolutionary um, gift to us of what life is intended to look like in relationship with you. Thank you, God, that you come the way you did, that you came the way you did, and that you come to bring peace to all people. You come to um, bring us fulfillment in this life here and now, not just some place to go when we die. I pray, Lord, that you would, through your power of your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and minds to this beautiful story that um, is different than we think and comes uh, in a way that we least expect it. And I pray that you would uh, give us a new way to celebrate you this Christmas season in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luke. 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 Chapter 2. Thank you for those that are participating and following along. Luke chapter 2. Again, filtering a joke from The Last Jedi. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So, I'm going to give you some history to follow along, because if you were reading this in the first century, all sorts of things are going to jump out from this little text that we're going to read about Jesus' birth. And it's going to be so counter-political, uh, theological, socioeconomic to its day that there's a clear message that the writers were wanting you to hear, which we'll get to. But I need to give you the backstory for what's going on here, okay? You guys with me? A little history for us on this Christmas Eve. If you are uninterested in history, just go get some hot chocolate, and um, we'll be right back. So 60 years before Jesus, Jesus was born, the Roman Empire came into Palestine and ruled and conquered Israel as we know it. 31 BCE, Caesar Augustus became emperor of the Roman Empire after he defeated Mark Antony. So there's this guy named Caesar Augustus, or Augustus, who was formerly known as Octavian. Octavian was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, who we've, we've read about and we know about, hopefully. Um, and Augustus ruled with an iron fist. He was a brutal emperor, and he was seen um, as not just the ruler of an empire, but he was worshipped as a god. And so what you have is Augustus, who means his name uh, was given to him, means illustrious one. And he had all sorts of nicknames that dated pre-Jesus' time. Okay? These were some of the nicknames that Caesar Augustus, um, who was the emperor at Jesus' birth, um, these were the nicknames he was known by, the son of the deified one, the son of God, savior of the world, bringer of peace, uh, peace, excuse me, high priest. The Senate declared Augustus as God incarnate on earth. This is all in history books. He was called Lord of Lords and his empire was called salvation. Any of this ring a bell? 
Okay, hopefully it's like bells and whistles are going off. His birthday, there was an announcement after he became emperor and he became this deified one. They made his birthday the beginning of a new era of time. And they called it gospel. They put statues of Augustus all over the empire and there was an inscription on the statues that said gospel or good news. We have an emperor. Justice, peace, security, and prosperity are ours forever. The Son of God has become king of the world. Does any of this sound familiar? Okay, hopefully it does. So that was in 9 BC that those got written, or BCE, that those uh, stones got carved and a message went out to the Roman Empire. Temples were built in his honor and cities with temples that were used to worship Caesar were called ecclesias which is the Greek word that the church uses for the word church. Are you with me? All of this is the backdrop for the birth of Jesus. <clears throat> and so um, what you have is Caesar Augustus ruling as the bringer of peace. And he uh, became emperor after a long civil war that stretched from England to India. And he brought peace through what the Romans called Pax Romana. And this is so important. Caesar brought peace through military conquest and domination. He would go into a city with an army and they would say, Caesar is Lord. And if you didn't say Caesar is Lord is back, they would completely destroy that city and town. I'm not going to go into details because there's little kids in here. But it's absolutely brutal. He was a brutal emperor who was worshipped throughout the Roman Empire with fear. And when it says um, that a census so his peace was through domination and military conquest. When it says a census was taken of the Roman Empire, what you have to think is the backdrop of, of census is military conquest. Because a census was taken in the first century to count people. And you counted people to know how much tax you would get from the people you've conquered. And you'd want to know how much taxes you would get so that you can mobilize your military for more conquest over the world. Are you with me? So when you read those three verses in Luke, this is the backdrop that we have of an emperor who's worshipped and of a, a community that's been oppressed by an empire um, who is, uh, the empire itself has come with a sword. And at the time of, uh, of Jesus' birth, the Israelites were taxed 80 to 90% of their income by Caesar, by Herod, and by the temple. Okay, so this is all setting the, the kind of the setting for this, this story. Let's continue reading. Are you guys with me so far? That was, wasn't so bad, right? You guys good? Is this changing your paradigm of the Christmas story a little bit? All right, we're just trying to resurrect Christmas, right? Not, not, not. Okay, so <clears throat> Joseph, I thought that was good. Joseph also went up, verse 4, from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Verse 6, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no, room, no guest room available for them. This is the famous story of Mary and Joseph. Now behind this is so much that we missed reading over because we make it this romantic nativity scene. And I want you, every time you see a nativity, I want you to think of what I'm about to tell you next. Because why does Joseph have to live in Nazareth and have to travel to Bethlehem where he was from? Because in that time period, the only reason you would leave home is for um, 
reasons of poverty or military oppression. And what's the poverty? Well, what happened in the first century, remember the Israelites owned the land and land was passed on from one generation to another. And Joseph was from Bethlehem. So at some point in his family's history, they lost possession of their land. They're displaced because of economic um, inequality. This is what scholars believe. So in other words, they had to give up their land because they couldn't afford it. And many people at the time of Jesus gave their land to wealthy landowners and the wealthy, the top 10%. And they had to work as day laborers on their own lands that their father or grandfathers gave to them, that they inherited. That's pretty humiliating. Would you agree? And the fact that he's somewhere else means that there was most likely no work for Joseph in Bethlehem. So we had to go where there was work. And Nazareth was 30 minutes away from a great construction site in Sephora. Scholars have found a massive theater. And um, the word used to describe Joseph as a carpenter, a stonemason. So they realized that he was building most likely a theater. And that's why he lived. In other words, Joseph is displaced to find day labor work. He was probably 18 or 19 years old. That's, what, that's when you would be betrothed to a young woman. And Mary, we see, is probably 13 or 14 years old. And God comes to her in Luke chapter 1 and tells her, um, an angel comes to her and says, you're going to bear a child um, uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's going to be the Messiah, the promised Messiah, the King, the Savior who will save all people from their sins. The name that you'll give him is Jesus, which means God saves. And the other name that they give him is Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. So what we have are poor, displaced, teenage peasant, pregnant outside of marriage, day laborers from the middle of nowhere that say yes to God in obedience to, pers- to bring God's way of life on earth as it is in heaven. So the story of Mary and Joseph is, again, the story of military domination, poverty, um, a day laborers looking for work. But even more dramatic is that Mary and Joseph are not yet married. And so when it says there's no guest room available for them, it doesn't mean there's not a Motel 6, it's too crowded, or there's a holiday and they don't have money for a holiday in. That's not how it worked in the first century. What you have is uh, most likely families and relatives or cousins from afar. You go to these towns um, when a census would take place or whenever you were traveling, and the Jewish community would welcome you even if you were a stranger. Because hospitality is a big deal. But hospitality in the first century to a Jewish context is embracing people in this situation and place as they are. You're saying, I accept you as you are. And because they were pregnant outside of marriage, it brought disgrace and shame to their family. And scholars will say the reason there's no room is because nobody wanted to take on the shame and disgrace of a couple who's pregnant outside of marriage. And there's a word for children who are born outside of marriage in the first century. And they're considered bastard children. They're called mazers. The Hebrew word is mazer, and you were publicly shamed. Scholars believe Jesus was so comfortable with sinners and tax collectors in the margins because he himself was a mazer. He grew up under the stigma of being an outcast himself. So let me just reframe real quick the context of the Christmas story. Poor, displaced, peasant, teenage parents who are stepping in obedience with the cost of disgrace and shame give birth to the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior of the world, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the wonderful counselor, the Prince of peace, God incarnate, God, the Son of God, comes to us 
as a baby in a barn and placed in a manger. Or you could say, um, as the announcement will be, wrapped in an old sweatshirt, put into a cardboard box. The modern, modern day equivalent of that sign given to the shepherds, which we'll read about. And this is the Christmas story. Are you with me? What does it do to how we celebrate this day? Verse 8. Um, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Brothers and sisters, the, this is such a weird detail to include. Um, and as we're breaking down the story, I just, want, I just want to paint context, because shepherds were despised in the first century. They had dirty jobs. They smelled. They lived with the sheep. They were the night shift, midnight shift shepherds. And so there's, there was even a class level of shepherds. The daytime were better than the nighttime. They were the lower caste, riffraff citizens on a nearby hill living outside. It would be like God showing up to our homeless brothers and sisters to announce the arrival of the Messiah under the overpass. God showing up to the broken places of our city, the forgotten places. He doesn't go to the temple. He doesn't go to 2nd Street. He doesn't go to Nick's on 2nd Street, which is where you would go if you wanted to eat. He wouldn't go, <clears throat> or open sesame, or whatever. Okay. He, he doesn't go to the religious elite. He doesn't go up to the churches. He shows up to the outcasts. He shows up to the least of these. And he brings an army of angels to show his glory and announce the birth of his baby boy. What does it say about our God? What does it say about the type of God we worship? And it says in the scripture that he's God with us, which is Emmanuel, God with us. But what you see over and over again in the life of Jesus in the Old Testament, that God is primarily with those who are suffering, struggling, those who have been kicked around by an empire to the edges. The story of God being with us is God is with the poor, the oppressed, the orphan, the widow, the refugee, the immigrant, the single mom struggling to get by, the kids bouncing back and forth to foster home. Those who have been pushed aside and forgotten. God flips the world upside down. And this Christmas story is evidence of this, that he will be found in the least, lowest, and last places you look. The Christmas story reveals to us that God will be found in our broken stories. I just want to just highlight a quick observation. But so much of Christmas is giving everyone the best, right? Large, big. We, we put on a smile. And there's a study that just came out um, this last year. 64% say that in Christmas, the number one thing they think about in the Christmas season or the number one word they use to describe Christmas is stressful. And it's stressful because of the financial implications. The second is over-commercialized. It's been hijacked by brands. The third is loneliness. And what you see is that in the Christmas story, in the midst of the shepherds being the primary audience that Jesus shows, or that God shows up to it to announce the arrival of Jesus, is that the Christmas story reveals to us that God will be found in the broken parts of our own story. And this is consistent with the whole of Scripture. Let me just share this. This could be the good news for some of you this morning. God is with us in the loss. See, this is what it means for Jesus to be God with us. We're not talking about that today. I preached on it in years past on Christmas Eve. But what's so powerful about God being with us is that he's with us in the brokenness, the loss, the failure, the sickness, the suffering. 
And if you think about your own life, if you think about those moments of great growth in your life, they're never, oh, that one time I bought my first car from that, my Uncle Jerry. That's not the moment of transformation and growth. Would you, it's, it's never those, oh, that one, that one time I went to you know, Cabo San Lucas on a vacation. It's usually that time we had no money to buy anything and God provided. Or that time that we, our, our, kid, our boy is suffering in the hospital and we realize the value of life is so much more than what we can do or what we can earn or what we can make or where we live. It's about family and relationship. Anyone else can relate to these things? That somehow the brokenness, the pieces of despair, the times that are hardest, that those are in fact those moments where God wants to come in and be with you in them and transform them. This is part of the Christmas story. It's right here. It's a beautiful narrative. Are you with me? Let's just finish the story then and we'll land on a couple of thoughts and then sing a couple of songs and uh, drink some more hot chocolate. Uh, verse 10, But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause you great joy for all the people. Today, and listen to these words, In the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, uh, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told, uh, what had to- been told to them about the child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard, all for all that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. This is the Christmas narrative. So what's, what's going on in this Christmas story? What's, what's the main thrux of this, this, the point of Christmas? Yes, God enters back into the story. God, Jesus comes and he's born it through a miraculous conception and all, there's all this context behind it. But, but what you have to realize is that there's a specific point that the writers and the early followers of Jesus want you to know. See, at the time of Jesus' birth, they already, there was a, an empire that already had a king of kings, a lord of lords. They called him the son of the divine. Um, one. They called him a savior of the world, the bringer of peace. His birth is described as gospel and good news. Angels come and announce to, the fo- to shepherds in a field, good news. They steal Caesar's brand and language. Great joy for all people. Um, uh, peace on earth. A savior has been born. Who is the savior? He is the Messiah, which translates king in most contexts. He is the Lord. Peace on earth on whom his favor rests. What you have going on is the followers of Jesus and the writers of the Christmas story using the exact same words used for Caesar. And they apply them to Jesus. So those words were used about Caesar before Jesus comes onto the scene. Why would anybody steal his titles, phrases, and words, or brand, if you will? Well, it's very clear. When somebody says Jesus is Lord and using the exact same word for Caesar, when you say Jesus is Lord, you are at the same time saying Caesar is not. Jesus is Savior, Caesar is not. 
This is good news. Caesar's is not good news. Peace for all people. What was the Roman peace? Roman peace were for the elite, those on the right end of the sword. Jesus is saying he's flipping it upside down. The Christmas story, what it does in context is it, it confronts the ideological, socio-political, economic, theological constructs of its day and offers another way of living here and now. Stick with me for just a second so I can bring this home. Every individual listening to the story in the first century would have understood how politically charged these, these words and phrases were 2,000 years ago. And the story is not subtle. It's obvious. It's making you choose. It, you can't just tell the story of Christmas and say, Merry Christmas, go celebrate opening some presents. It's forcing those who would hear it to decide who is Lord, Jesus or Caesar. The story tells us and presents the fact, actually, there are two different kingdoms, two different saviors, two different lords, two different sons of gods. And when you say one is God, you're saying that the other one is not. How amazing is that? That the Christmas story in not so subtle ways makes you decide who you will worship. And we might not have an emperor that's worshipped like Caesar today, but I would like to suggest that Jesus does have some competitions to his life and followership. There might not be temples with Caesar's inscriptions, but there might be some malls that say pleasure, money, success, comfort. We might have aligned ourselves to that Caesar in our context. Wouldn't it be so amazing to come to church and say, Jesus is Lord, and our lives, when we say that, confront the alternative ways of living in this world? To quote uh, one of my favorite writers is David Foster Wallace, who's not a Christian, who wasn't a Christian. He passed away years ago. He says this, look, and and I believe this is what's going on with this, this story of Christmas. He says this, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Amen? Some of us get it. If you worship money, let me just just expand just a moment and show you what what he means. If you worship money and things... If you worship money and things, think about this. The thing that worship is about where you get your identity, meaning, purpose, significance. Where you align your heart and allegiance to. If it's money and things, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. And it's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will, find, you will always uh, feel ugly. And then when the time time and age start to uh, show, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you. Worship power, being in charge, and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful. It's that they are unconscious. In other words, we all worship as humans. It's our default setting. But what the Christmas story and the writers so brilliantly do is make you decide who you will worship. Are you with me? A couple more thoughts and we'll end. Christmas disrupts how the world works. 
It disrupts how the world works. You see, everyone knows the way of the world, the way of empire. It's about winning. It's about keeping up with the Kardashians. It's about beating your competition. It's about more and more stuff, more money, more relationships, more conquests, you could say. It's about being the best or making something great again. The way our world works like uh, is the way of empire. And empires throughout history are oppressive and domineering. They produce a kind of person that's tired, vulnerable, exhausted, anxious, full of fear and despair. Can anyone, anyone relate? Christmas disrupts this because God comes to us not in the way we expect him to come. He doesn't show up with a legion of angels to defeat the enemies of the empire. He doesn't destroy the seizures of the world. No, God comes quietly, slowly as a baby, overlooked in the middle of the night to some teenage day laborer parents. You see, the Christmas story is a quiet revolution that will become the greatest movement in human history. It doesn't start with the wealthy, it starts with the poor. It doesn't start at the center of culture, it starts in the margins. It doesn't start with the crowd, it starts with just a few people. And our world would like to say, the world of empire wants us to do large things famously as fast as possible. But what Christmas shows us about our God is our God does small things, mostly overlooked over a long period of time. Let me say that one more time. Our God does small things, mostly overlooked over a long period of time. If there's any reflection on the Christmas story that you take away, it's this phrase. To look for God in the small, overlooked, slow things in life. And in fact, what I would love for you to focus on New Year's goals, not not writing that book or getting the healthiest you've ever been, but actually slowing down so that you can focus on the small and overlooked in life. I think that's where the revolution is is that the Christmas story is so consistent with the life and message and ministry of Jesus that we, we don't see it. See, Jesus comes to offer you another way to live here and now, right in the middle of the chaos, anxiety, pain, and despair. He meets you where you are and brings to wherever you are liberation and healing, hope and peace. All throughout Scripture, Jesus confronts the alternative ways of living. He says, if you want to be great, you got to become a servant. If you want to be first, you have to become last. If you just have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can move mountains. Turn the other cheek. Bless those who, who uh, persecute you. Go the second mile. Give to those who ask. Lay down your life for a friend. And if you want to save your life, you'll lose it. But whoever loses their life for his sake will find it. Do you see it? It's all over the scriptures, and it's right here in the Christmas story. But the first Christmas is the beginning of a revolution. It's so compelling. This is the story that's endured for thousands of years. Why? It's not just because it's a great story. And religious skeptics might say, yeah, it's proof that the Bible is merely crafty or um, a crafty creation of ancient writers who assembled a story too perfectly, too perfect to be accepted as fact. But I think billions of Christians will say that this is evidence of a great storyteller who in a stroke of sovereignty by God crafted a historical event that humans could not forget and one with power to change those who encounter it. The Christmas story disrupts everything. If you let it, don't keep it domesticated. Are you with me? So Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Next time you see a nativity scene, remember God's subversive power to take down the empire through the weak, powerless, vulnerable, and marginalized. Merry Christmas. Remember, the story we celebrate is about making room for those who have no place to go on Christmas. 
And may your traditions be disrupted by those who have no place to go. May you make some room in your physical, literal lives for our brothers and sisters who would be the ones that receive the glorious announcement from the angels on high. Merry Christmas. You could say it back. Remember how God is with you. He's for you. He's with you in your brokenness. He's with you in your suffering, in your failure, in your loss, in your in too much over your head. He's in your imperfections because that's what this story is all about. Merry Christmas. I'm waiting for it. Don't make me put DMX back on. Remember, our God who works through the small, overlooked, and slow. And just like the shepherds in Luke 2.20 said, or did, may you return, may you return to your everyday ordinary life, glorifying and praising God for all the things you have heard and seen. Merry Christmas. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.